You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Cool. Pretty pretty good delay. Uh, as in, not much delay. Uh, okay, I'll stop crapping on. <laughs> it's the 4th of September 2018. I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about the value of stories. Uh, but before we get to that, we just want to maybe give a bit of an apology uh, for... We've had some sort of delayed episodes. This, this episode's delayed by a week, and our last episode, which was uh, an amazing interview Ben did with uh, Jack's Jackie Brown, was delayed by a couple of weeks. Um, I don't know, we've just... How to explain it, Ben? But we've just had you know some hiccups and some 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 health issues and we've both had a lot going on. I think <laughs> yeah, both got a lot going um, on. So we just you know, want to the, say sorry for that. Yeah, uh, you know the podcast uh, takes up a lot of our time and energy, and we we really do put as much effort as we can into it into making into making it as as good as possible and as as thorough and as polished as possible. Uh, and we we're happy to do that, and we do it because we we really enjoy doing it. But it's it's probably valuable. I guess, at points for people to understand, you know, all the work that goes into it and and, um, and that sometimes it, uh, you know, real life gets in the way. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Particularly uh, because we're, you know, we're not getting paid for this. So, sometimes those other things get in the way. And in, and in saying that, there's potential that there's going to be a few other things getting in the way you know, in the next little bit. Um, so, in next Friday... I'm going to the UK for two weeks for work, uh, so I'll be away, and then Ben, you're going away as well. Yeah, I'm, I, we we just had a conversation before we started recording to realise that uh, there is no overlap of us both being in the country in between our two trips. Just before Simon gets back, I'm going to the US for a month uh, for a holiday. So uh, hopefully, you know, there'll be a great opportunity for both of us to do some, uh, record some interviews with some people while we're there, but it means that we might be a little bit patchy on the schedule over the next couple of months as well, but we will do our best to record some stuff in advance and keep you updated about where things are at. And then we'll be back into the full swing of things when we're both back in the country. Yes, indeed. The Australian comedian Hannah Gadsby has taken the world by storm in recent months after her critically acclaimed comedy special Nanette was released on Netflix. Gadsby's special, one which tackles her experiences of homophobia and sexism, as well as the role of comedy in perpetuating these experiences, has been lauded as the very type of comedy we need for this moment. Gatsby's comedy is one part of a growing trend to use personal storytelling as a means for political engagement and action. From campaigns for marriage equality to much of the material that now occupies LGBTIQ media, telling stories of oppression have become a core part of LGBTIQ political expression and organising. But can individual stories of oppression actually create change? What are the values and limitations of storytelling as a means for political change? So, Simon, to start off the discussion, uh, somewhere slightly easier than those big questions, I guess, what, what, what did you think of Nanette? Did you, did you enjoy it? I enjoyed parts of it. Um, so, obviously, there are some parts. The, Nanette is very, very powerful, and there are, there are some Pretty really... Pretty intense. Really, it's really intense. There's some really strong moments, uh, and, it's, and it's obviously touched a lot of people. And I, I sort of... Um, when I was watching it, this was a, a few weeks ago, I did tweet about... 
about halfway through, I think I said, I'm just not feeling it quite yet. And I did get a lot of pushback from people being like, hold on, you know, it's really important. It's really powerful. And there were some parts that I loved. I, I think the bit, the bit that, st- that sticks in my mind that I loved the most was when she was talking about uh, mental health and um, Van Gogh and the guy who's came up to her and said that she shouldn't take drugs because it'll stop her from being, you know, uh, from being able to express herself. She's an artist. Because yes. she's an artist, yes. And I loved that bit. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it re- really touched on a whole bunch of different stuff. I thought it was really great. And there is, and that, that, that for me is the bit that I remember the most, the most clearly. Um, and there are, other, you know, there are other very powerful moments like that that run throughout the show. What I, what I, but at the same time, I sort of came out feeling like this is a powerful story, um, and it's one that has a lot, has having a lot of impact and is having a lot of resonance out there. Um, but for something, there was something for me that just wasn't didn't quite cross over the mark of of turning this into something that could have, uh, you know, that could be a powerful. Uh, could have power, powerful outcomes, and the, and the, and the, and this is why I wanted to talk about sort of storytelling in this in this episode, um, because I think it's a really interesting example of 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 how someone can tell powerful stories and and do so really with an impact, uh, but at the same time leave me feeling a little bit like there was oh, I wanted more, I wanted something more, I wanted something else to come from this, and and I'm not quite sure what that is, but I yeah, I was, I was about to kind ask, of, yeah, uh, yeah, there's something that's kind of missing in terms of. Uh, and and where where I feel like this is going is I feel like there is and it's not just in a net it's in a broader society and I think and I think that maybe actually the best example of this is if you look at a lot of LGBTIQ media now it's a lot of uh, telling the story of this person and their experience of express uh, of oppression and telling the story of this person and their experience of oppression and this this other person and their different experience of oppression. And an expectation that that is how we create change. That if we just tell our stories, that 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 is the thing that will create that will motivate people to to change to to to, to change their positions. That we just need to tell our stories of of how important it is, for example, uh, to. Um, to, for, for gay people to get married, you know, and how, how emotionally important that is, and, and politicians will suddenly change their minds. And I, and I just, I think that there's something very lacking in that that I would like to, to that I think that I found in Nanette, that I, that I sort of struggled with in Nanette. Sure. I mean, you, you only watched it today, is, is that Literally correct? watched it about uh, half an hour ago. So, what, you know, what, what are your thoughts? You've probably got a bit, bit of a fresher mind than I do about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are a few things I would say. I guess to respond to what you just said quite directly. I, I agree with the broad principle of that. I think that there is a, 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 a tendency to kind of believe those, uh, that, the, that storytelling is as powerful as that in, in isolation. Uh, and I think that I, ha- I have some problems with that that I'm sure we'll kind of dig into as we go along. But I found it more successful than a lot of other queer storytelling that I've seen, not, I don't know, to, for whatever it means to call it queer storytelling, I don't know. I mean, it, like, it is quite queer, I think, in, in, in not just because she is a lesbian, but, you know, in the ways that it kind of talks about gender and, and, and plays with the form of stand-up comedy. It's a bit kind of odd to know quite how to talk about the content of it because it's been out for months now and, you know, mm, like, mm. what can we expect people to reasonably have seen or not seen or whatever? So maybe we just kind of won't worry about um, spoilers. But, yeah, I, I thought it did a much better job than a lot of things at connecting individual experience to broader structural issues. And that, for me, is where, like, I don't think 
like clearly stories are powerful, you know, uh, and and I I think that they're going to be they are and will always be important in any kind of project oh, for social change. Absolutely. Um, and I do. I also often get really kind of frustrated with. Uh, those we, with when we we just kind of imagine that to tell an individual story and and have it just kind of stand alone is a is a powerful act that can lead to change yeah and you know maybe it can again that's probably something else to dig into but yeah for me for me she did kind of manage to to quite deftly i think connect her experiences to broader questions about male power and the relationship between male discomfort and male violence uh, and and bigger kind of questions about uh, you know what uh, queerness like what kind of shame around queerness can produce and do and the kind of factors that produce that yeah I actually thought that was really that was all really well done I also like in terms of you know whether or not I liked it I my partner often teases me because I I don't I don't really I don't really like stand up as a format. And oh, that's interesting. I love he, stand-up. Ah, uh, I just, I don't, I just don't really, uh, I just don't find it funny. I don't know, like... Yeah, and you're allowed to have your wrong opinions, and that's okay. But, <laughs> you know. I love comedy. I love comedy, but but that sort of format of just, like, kind of standing in front of a mic and delivering... To, like, I tend to enjoy more sort of narrative comedy. And yeah, there's, yeah, and whereas a lot... I'm, I'm, the, I'm the kind of person who can sit and watch and, like be on the couch and have YouTube on and just go through, like, clips of stand-up comedy and just watch Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm, I just... For whatever reason, I just don't find it that funny. Um, and so, I, like, I didn't... I, li- <laughs> I literally didn't laugh through the entire thing. I mean, which is which is not necessarily a meaningful statement to make about Nanette because it, it it's not... I mean, it is comedy, like, it, and there are parts of it that, that are funny, I guess, um, but... I feel like I'm the wrong person to ask about it because yeah, it's, no, just fair, not, it's just not my kind of thing. But the moments that I... I mean, I, I just found it so powerful to see a to see a woman be so openly and publicly angry, I found really powerful because it's just not something that you ever see. You know, there are moments towards the end of the special where she's really shouting, you know, and really, really angry which is no mean feat given she's had to perform the show presumably hundreds of times. Um, yeah, but I, 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 I did find that, find that quite affecting, partly because, yeah, as I said, it's, it's just not a common sight, I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that, there, as I said, that there are definitely very powerful moments in it uh, that, that, that did move me. And that, and, and that, that the end is one, one, one of those moments, the sort of the real end, uh, the sort of... Um, that, that those moments where she is shouting and she's angry and it's very clear and, and to, the sort of the jokes sort of stop as the end as, as you get more to the end because it's sort of having that big impact. Um, but yeah, I still I still I didn't come out of it raving about it like I think a lot of other people have and I'm trying to figure out why that is the case um, compared to everything I've seen about it. Maybe it's because I went in with lots of expectations because so many people said it was sure, yeah, going to be definitely. so amazing. I definitely um, think that was part of the problem for me. I mean, you know, expectations kind of will kill, for me at least, will kind of kill a lot of things. I mean, I, I wonder whether... So I come back to this thing that we talk about every time you and I talk about the prospect of doing more pop culture stuff on the podcast and we stop ourselves short for for a number of reasons. But I think, like, one of the reasons is that I don't, you know, I don't want to speak speak for you but i i feel like something that you and i have in common is is that we don't we both love pop culture and there are lots of things 
uh, in pop culture that we connect with really deeply, but I am not someone that very easily makes a connection between my experiences of pop culture and broader projects of advocacy and activism. Like, they just don't naturally connect for me for whatever reason in a way that they seem to for the vast majority of other people. Like, I, I, I just don't... You sort of enjoy your pop culture and then you go to your politics sort of at a, at a, at a sort of separate spheres almost? Is that kind of what you're saying? Because I can see that. I can see that yeah. in myself, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's partly it's partly that. I guess it's more that what seems from the outside, and I feel like a bit like a kind of alien trying to, you know, assess this, like, human thing all of a sudden, but I get the sense from other people who... who Who's, for whom politics and pop culture are really intertwined, that that's partly about uh, identification with particular characters or seeing things represented that we think are important. And I guess those things are not things that I like about pop culture. That's not they're not things that I find interesting or enjoyable about pop culture. For me, like the cultural works that I have found the most politically interesting or engaging, it's usually when it when I connect to kind of really specific ideas or that those things are like explorations of political ideas that I find really interesting, that kind of representative stuff or, or stuff about identification is just not, A, it's not how I engage with pop culture and B, it's not really my politics. I mean, I think that uh, we went to uh, Queer Stories, which is an event, uh, you know, that's kind of a similar mold. It's, it's, it's Queer Stories. That's, it's, um, yeah, it is, yeah. a, is a night of queer storytelling. And, and I've been a couple of times in Sydney and I've spoken at one of these. Uh, and I'm in the, I mean, I'm, I've got a chapter in the Queer Stories book coming. Oh, it's not coming out. It's, it's come out now. So, you know, there's, there's an engagement. good booksellers. Yeah. <laughs> and so, obviously, there's an engagement from me in sort of storytelling. And I think we, we went along to the last one. My friend spoke at it. And one of the things that um, struck me, you said at the end, that the ones you enjoyed the more were the ones where people were talking about things that they were doing rather than talking about people who they are as people, if that makes sense. I think that was yeah, your, t- yeah. your terms that you used. That something, it was sort of just a discussion of political action, a discussion of, of of engaging with political ideas, rather than a story about who you are as a person or what your identity is or how you came to your identity. That sort, See, of, touch, that sort, of, that sort of touched you more. That's what you said. That's sort of like no, 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 that, that is basically what I said. But I think, like, I think what I... It's not even so... Like, if I think back to that night, which was, you know, a couple of months ago or something, the story that I remember the most and that sticks in my head the most as as being the most um, powerful to me was uh, a story from an older uh, lesbian woman who's who's a, uh, an author. I think she was a Kiwi. Uh, yeah, and she this told this amazing story about this strange weekend she had some years ago with a man who she just kind of, like a stranger that she met who turns out they were both kind of into like uniform fetishes and he may or may not have been a former special operations kind of military guy and he was telling her all these kind of crazy stories about his past that may or may not have been real and it was just this kind of fantastic story that I found really fascinating and engaging not because it was about these uniform fetishists, because it wasn't really about these uniform fetishists. It, to me, was about the experience of almost, like, role play in a very broad... Like, what it means to kind of 
encounter another stranger, encounter a stranger and exist in this space where you can kind of create your own reality. Uh, in, and it's a very weird, extreme example of that. But that's to me, was why that story was interesting. And, you know, she could have been any, anyone, really. I mean... Absolutely, yeah. You know, like, it, it, it didn't... Not that it didn't have anything to do with her being queer. I would never say that because it, it was it was a very queer story in lots of ways. But the who she was was less interesting to me than what the story was about. Mm. Yeah, and I think maybe this is where I want to come back to some of the the, the topics that uh, that we've discussed, or the or the or the first questions that we had around the value of story storytelling, because I think. And I go back to examples of LGBTIQ media, and maybe and maybe this is actually less existent in Nanette, um, even though I think Nanette was very focused on a story on sort of storytelling. Um, you yeah, know, very explicitly, you know, ex- she, yeah. she says that that's kind of yeah something she wants but, people to take away. But from it. something that maybe you don't see so much in Nanette, but you do see a lot in in a lot of stuff is is the, is a, is, a, is a focus on storytelling about who 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 queer people are as as the basis of the story or as the basis of some sort of political engagement of some form the the yes. sort of the need to tell out to tell the stories of our lives to tell the stories of of who are of what our identities are how would you like to look 5 years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Who... That or where that comes from, how we discovered identity. It's you know, very often very classic coming out stories. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about queer stories when I um, when I when I did when I did speak about it, uh, speak at it. One of the things that uh, the organizer Maeve Marsden said was, "We tend not to do coming out stories because we, you know, they're so common and, and people, you know, unless it's really really a unique one." Um, but anyway, that's that's an aside. But I think that 
there's something in there, and I think it's a very neoliberal thing about the need to um, to to tell a story, to give justification for the for who you are, to to give yourself some sort of validity in what you're saying, um, and then to to be able to have ownership over that validity, and to be able to therefore have an authorial voice to talk about an issue. And I think that that is where I where I start to where I start to have real issues with the way we engage with stories politically, particularly in the sort of political sphere and, and the queer political sphere is where you have to have your life story and the more complex and more oppression you have in your life story, the better to be able to have some sort of authorial voice to mm. talk about, to I talk mean, about I, things. I, I, I would critique your use of the word complex, but certainly, you know, yeah. the, the more oppression. Certainly. More oppression, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because in some ways these stories uh, rely on their simplicity, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a very simple tale. Tale of yeah, you're probably you're right about that. Maybe I'll, I'll get rid of the word complex because you know, a very simple tale of oppression gives you the space to to um, to sort of articulate very clearly why it is that you deserve, not, but it, why it is that you deserve some sort of change in laws. But even then, we're not even often, frequently, not talking about that. These stories are told in ways that are very about. Let's just talk about who I am. As mm. as a means of political action, and and that I find very limiting, and I find it uh, I find that very troubling because I think it is actually in many ways a very neoliberal uh, sort of individualized experience that has um, that doesn't have the capacity to create connections between people because we all have to just talk about our own individual stories, not about how our shared connections. Mm. It's a, it's funny when I saw your the way that you'd framed uh, a couple of questions around this uh, in in the the background for the episode. I, I almost laughed because I, uh, so, you know, as I think I've talked about on the podcast before, I, I started, uh, I've started uni again for the first time in some years recently. And so I'm like, I have access to all of these like academic talks and ideas and readings and stuff that I just haven't really had for ages. And so I don't want to become that guy that's just going, oh, I saw this thing at uni the other day, but I saw this thing at uni the other day. Uh, <laughs> you count how many times you do this in future episodes. Yeah, no, do hold, hold me, hold me to account. And it was a talk by... I'm actually going to look up the name because I feel like this is the second time... I really should have done this before we started. But this is the second time in this episode where I've mentioned, like, a, a, a talk by a really impressive woman and I, I want to actually have the name of it. You well, know what? The, I'm just going to look up and one, put it in the show notes. Yeah, for the one of Queer Stories, be... we can put it up on the show notes as well. Because they, yeah, they actually yeah, do I'll... produce a podcast, so it should be up on the podcast by now, hopefully. And I'll I'll track this down. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that this academic has, has published work out there that I can find... Uh, but she, I'm, I'm not going to look her up. It'll take, it'll interrupt my uh, my thoughts too much right now. But anyway, she told, she gave this presentation about. She's writing a book about storytelling, and she gave this presentation about uh, some research that she had done. In I'm probably going to get some of the details here wrong, but some research she had done into a campaign in the U.S. for uh, the rights of domestic workers, like foreign domestic workers, so primarily people from uh, from Latin America who were uh, illegally, you know, quote unquote, illegally coming to the the US to be like kind of housekeepers and 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 work in jobs like that. Uh, basically, all women, um, you know, very very uh, low, comparatively low socioeconomic backgrounds, and and were really just kind of taking these jobs because. They because they could because they could get them uh, to survive, uh, and she the the academic again whose name I can't remember did this really fascinating analysis that involved interviews with these women and interviews with the campaigners and all sorts of things about how the campaign the the kind of white run campaign or the campaign kind of run by people who were not 
the, the actual domestic workers themselves, for the most part, uh, was encouraging these women to tell their stories about their experiences of domestic work and being treated really badly in those in those uh, jobs in very specific ways. And they were ways that, like, in order to be able to sell them to media, essentially, mm-hmm. and sell, sell them to, to political stakeholders. And in ways that, she argued, kind of rendered them very individual. So the stories became less about all of the structural forces that resulted in them having to take these jobs, like, uh, you know, global economic inequality, the kind of predatory... Uh, foreign economic policies of the United States, uh, the, you know, global capitalism and global inequality generally, all those sorts of things, the gendered nature of it, all that stuff was stripped away from these stories and they were instead turned into stories about these disadvantaged women who were being oppressed by, quote-unquote, bad employers. Mm -hmm. So these were what the stories ended up being. And uh, the academic argued that what this meant was it, it, it effectively limited the scope of what the campaign could achieve. So it, the, the political dem- demands of the campaign were, were significantly narrowed because these broader structural issues were not being communicated to the people who uh, had the power to, to, to change them. Um, and there's certainly a kind of catch-22 here about, you know, do you need to tell stories this way in order to kind of get traction in mainstream media? Do you just kind of have to suck it up and do that? Like, what are, are the alternatives effective at all? I think those are all really valid questions, but I I find very persuasive the argument she made that by individualizing the stories of the people who were actually having this experience, the political outcomes changed and were diminished, which is, I think, exactly what you're saying. You yeah, know? yeah, no, it is exactly what you're saying. Well, sorry, exactly what I'm saying. It's also what you're saying. Um, but I, we're I, both you saying know, it. Yeah, it, it actually, now now that you've brought up a university lecture, I'm going to bring up university lecture <gasps> too. Do it. Um, and this one actually is one I went to yesterday, which is one that triggered in my thoughts to su- suggest we do this, to, to, to do this topic. Uh, and it's with a, a former colleague of mine, someone who used to uh, do his, who did his PhD at the ANU and now works in Singapore. His name is Matthew Wade. Uh, and he is doing research into crowdfunding for uh, medical expenses. Um, so oh, looking in looking in the US, uh, US specific because it's it's primarily exists in the US. But looking at crowdfunding pages where people are yeah are raising money for their own medical expenses. Uh, and so what was interesting about this was uh, he's doing analysis of the content behind all of this and 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 how people uh, how how these how these websites. Um, tell people to, to 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 do the work and you know how they might succeed in in getting money for their medical expenses, but also how people are writing about this and how people are framing themselves and the way that they they do it and sort of what he was t- talking about was the the importance that the the successful ones, the ones that raise lots of money, and most of them aren't. Most of them, you know, we have lots of people who are trying to raise money for their medical expenses and just can't do so. Mm. Um, the successful ones are the ones who portray, have to portray themselves as sort of very morally pure. They have no vices. They don't have. Uh, they're often, you know, heroes. It's often people who are former, um, who are veterans, who are the ones that that, that, that succeed. Um, and that these websites also, you know, it's often you know things that uh, are considered sort of outside social norms or considered controversial don't do well. So people, you know, for, he, he used the example of women trying to raise funds for abortion was actually uh, blocked on some of these sites that they wouldn't, Shit. some of these sites wow. wouldn't run campaigns for this, uh, wouldn't allow people to run campaigns for this. 
and and then, and then he also talks about that there's an important and he hadn't done the analysis into this but there's an important racial element into it too that there's sort of research that suggests that people of color don't raise as much money as white people um, on these sites po- possibly because you know and I think there's potential reasons for that but you know because they because of of racism you know people don't want to don't 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 donate to people of color possibly also because there's different social networks so they might uh, often exist within poorer social networks because people of color are often poorer um but you know that there's important racialized ne- elements there but i think this connects back into what you were saying somewhat the the importance to in these what he was saying the importance of a lot of these people to portray themselves in a particular way and to tell that story, but also to do all of the labor required to raise money for their own medical expenses, which takes away capacity to engage in the structural change required, particularly in the United States, um, to to change the healthcare system. It is now sort of being placed onto individuals to tell their stories so that, you know, and, to, and to prove themselves to be morally worthy of medical expenses mm. rather than, rather than well, a almost, state. I feel like you know, doing it's that. almost like they're being forced to frame themselves as exceptions yeah, to kind absolutely. of go, this is not like I'm just like you and I've kind of fallen on to yeah, hard yeah. times rather yeah. than go, I am a, a a victim like many, many other people are of structural oppression. But it's fun, yeah. like to But I think that go... that's Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 but I think that, that can can link back to you know where I where I, where I'm interested in this topic and in, in, in looking at a lot of the way that queer people t- use stories, um, in which it sort of talks about this sort of exceptional circumstance of this one mm, person yeah. who uh, had this oppression uh, committed against them, and you know we need to change this one story rather than looking at it as a structural issue that affects everybody in some sure, kind of way. Sure, sure. But to go to go back to Nanette, I mean, this to me just reminds me how. Again, effective, I think, that it was at linking this stuff to structural oppression. I mean, you know, Hannah talks about things that have happened to her, but I think always does a really good job at, of placing it in a, in a broader context and uses her experiences as a way to talk about structural violence. Um, yeah, in a way I, that I think is uncommon in, in, in a lot of queer storytelling. And I, and I think, you know, I've been thinking about it over the course of us talking here. Um, <laughs> and I think I agree with you as I think about that, that she does do that very well. I think probably where, I, where what I said at the start, I wanted more. I think that where I did have some issues um, is that I think that I wasn't quite convinced of the structures where where she where where she placed the structural oppression, and that is a different topic for for today uh, than than it is than we need. Sure, but, sure, yeah. Um, but I maybe that is where I was missing. But I I do agree that she does connect her her stories to to particular structures. I probably don't think that they're the right structures to be discussing, but that is something different. Um, <laughs> but I think that um, you're right in that. It's different to the kind of stuff we're talking about here that I do have a problem with, which is something that doesn't connect to a structure that says, I have this individualized problem and that's the issue and then sort of moves on from that. You know, and mm. that doesn't it doesn't engage with how is this how is my story part of a broader structural issue structural problem and how is my story how does my story connect with other people's stories? Because we all have these experiences of of, of of oppression. We live in a capitalist society. If you're in the working class, you have an experience of oppression in some form. How do we connect these stories together to form sort of sort of collective story, some sort of collective narrative? It's very individual siloed stories that exist that are sort of all exceptional. We're all we all have this exceptional ex- experience of oppression that cannot connect with other people. And I think yes. that's, the, yeah. that's where it becomes really difficult. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I, you know, whilst I might 
uh, disagree with your critiques of Nanette. I, I do think that the problem that you're describing is a very real one and, and is a very, very common one. I think something interesting that that was brought up for me around uh, this this academic that I saw speaking at uh, at university is that it's not to say that I think there is this idea sometimes that if a story connects with people or makes us feel something or or prompts some sort of affective response in the people who are hearing it as you know lots of these stories do that that somehow equals effectiveness or equals some sort of change and it doesn't what, have to does it no it doesn't at all and or or also that it might affect change but it might be a very specific kind of change and again what i what i found fascinating about this talk was that she said it's not that these stories weren't affecting and didn't move people they absolutely did but that was part of the problem you know that it it moved people in a way that connects like, I, I certainly don't think that to make change, you have to kind of make everything cerebral and have everyone kind of thinking. I think you you, you can use affect. Uh, I, I think we should be suspicious of affect. Uh, I have a, a good friend who always who always says, if I have a very strong emotional re- reaction to something, I'm immediately suspicious of of what the structure <laughs> the structure in which that's taking place. Um, and I think that that's in some ways a good impulse, politically at least. Um, but yeah, there's a difference between something being really affecting and really powerful and it being uh, part of a, a, a political process that we think will affect the change that we want. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think also, I sort of introduced you to say that, you know, you don't, it does, a story doesn't also have to be about creating change, right? So sometimes stories are just nice things to hear about and to talk about and to engage in. And I think that that's one of the things I like about queer stories is that it's not necessarily about always about creating, you know, no one's, you know, you don't have to go into that to tell that, to tell a story with a political agenda to oh, change yeah, people's yeah, minds. Oh, yeah, totally. That's and a very so, important point. <laughs> you know, and so part of part of maybe my disappointment within the net is not actually related to the show. It's related to all of the hype around the show. Sure, and, you yeah. know, and it's not, that's not Hannah Gatsby's fault, you know. It's, you know, that, you know, she might not have gone into that with some grand plan for ma- for major change, uh, that, you know, her, her show is going to change the world. It has been spoken about as if it is, and I, and I just don't see those connections, but that's... That's not actually, you know, the stories are still valuable in themselves if people get something out of them, if people enjoy them, if they're entertaining, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, these are all important things. Totally. I, yeah, it's more that they shouldn't stand in for our politics than that they shouldn't exist. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I, God, I mean, I just like look at Hattie Gatsby and, and, and Annette and, and she's just this, you know, lesbian comedian from, you know, lesbian, she's much more than that, obviously. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's so astonishing to me that Nanette is as big as it is, like this kind of international phenomenon, I think is uh, just on a basic level very, very cool. If you would like to get in touch or make a comment, you can do so in a whole range of ways. Uh, We have an email address, which is queerspodcast at gmail.com. And we have Facebook and Twitter accounts. Uh, We're on Facebook and Twitter at Queers Podcast. We also have our personal social media accounts. I'm on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer and on Twitter at Simon Copland. And Ben is on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. You can also head to our website to find the podcast, which is queerspodcast.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or any other platform uh, where you listen to podcasts and whatever platform that might be. If you leave us a review and or rating, whatever, whatever's possible, 
uh, that would be ideally a positive review and or rating. Uh, that would be very nice. It would make us feel good. Uh, also, as always, a shout out to our podcast network earbuds and finally just tell a friend uh if you like the podcast maybe share it on social media tell a friend who you think might like it tell a friend who liked nanette or didn't like nanette and might find this an interesting discussion to talk about uh so yeah do that thank you as always for listening and we will be back hopefully in a couple of weeks but as we said we will keep you posted with a new episode Melbourne's Podcast Network. EarbudsNetwork.com